Welcome to the Alchemical Mind. Today, I am wrapping up the discussion of the Hermetica. For now, we're going to dive back into it at some point in the future and look at it from a different angle. But I wanted to do this final episode on the Hermetica on a chapter titled The Secret Teachings. And as I mentioned, I think two episodes ago, I've been, uh, I've been really interested in, in thinking a lot about mystery traditions and why they arise, why they exist, and whether they are or are not necessary. And I've gone back and forth on this quite a bit over the past uh, several months as I've been thinking about it, and I don't quite have an answer, so I wanted to do this episode to kind of get some thoughts out and see if I could kind of come to some form of conclusion as I dive into the material. So I will be reading from this final chapter of the Hermetica called The Secret Teachings. Again, I am reading from the Timothy Freak and Peter Gandhi uh, translation of this book, and I explained in detail in The Hermetica Part 1 from three or four episodes ago as to why I chose this particular edition. Now, mystery traditions are really interesting to me, and of course a lot of our esoteric ideas come from dealing with the repercussions of introducing mystery elements into philosophy and religion. And if this is not anything new, of course, right? I mean, if we were to assume the dates for the Hermetic are correct, it's at least 2,000 years old. And of course, we know that there were plenty of mystery traditions before that, like the Lucian Mysteries, which I'll dive into at some point in the near future. And of course, mystery traditions go even further back to Mesopotamia, Samaria, Egypt, etc. So this is not a new thing, but, but I find the idea of a mystery tradition rather interesting and as to why mystery traditions come about. And of course, one of the main reasons why they come about is to keep knowledge secret from, let's say, an oppressive force. And this is particularly true of the Christian esoteric tradition, the mystical tradition, and in the next episode we're going to start diving into Gnosticism a little bit, so we can dive a little bit more into that when we get there. But when Christianity first came about, of course, there was a lot of persecution. This is a historical fact, not just something that's in the Bible. It is a historical fact. And so in order for these people to be able to worship in their chosen tradition, peacefully and without uh, being killed, crucified, etc., they would have to create sort of mystery elements of the tradition in order for the public to not see them as not worshipping whatever the accepted methodology is. And of course, early Christians a lot of times worshipped underground. We're going to talk about that in future episodes. And uh, they didn't really have churches. It was more of a dialogue between multiple people. Right? There was no priesthood, none of like, nothing like that. And so in, in essence, I would deem that as more of a, a purer mystical tradition than what we come to know as Christianity today. And again, I'll dive much more into that as we dive maybe even past Gnosticism a little bit. Because even the Gnostics, though certain sects had clergy, uh, not all did. And I think that is kind of a central aspect of Gnosticism in, in general. And, and to some extent, mystery schools, to be honest. We're going to get to that a little bit later in the episode. 
So, of course, if you're being persecuted for your personal beliefs, it is natural that you'd want to hide some of these things. So you create symbols, not just visual symbols like, say, the sign of the fish or the sign of the cross or any other symbol that you might associate with a particular tradition. Those things are important, of course, to be able to differentiate people, right? If you walk down the street and you see somebody wearing a crucifix, chances are they believe in the Judeo-Christian God, right? You're not going to have a Hindu wearing a, a Christian cross unless they're Christian. You're not going to have a Buddhist wearing a Christian cross unless they're Christian. Uh, you might not have somebody have a statue of a Buddha, for example, unless they're Buddhist, which, I mean, that's kind of, mm, I don't know. You can take that either way, because I, I do have a Buddhist statue, even though I don't consider myself a Buddhist. But there are certain signs that we tend to show to the outer world, to the exoteric world, so that people recognize that we're part of the club, basically, right? And so, of course, those people know what the symbols are, and they can greet each other and know that they're safe talking to that person about something. This is something that we do even now. This is not, you know, purely a, a mystery tradition thing. You know, you have uh, different clubs, you have gangs, whatever. They, they have signs, right? You have gang signs, hand symbols. You might have a specific handshake with your friends that uh, nobody else knows. I know. So I, this might be true more for men than, than for women, I would assume. I, I don't know. I only have brothers, so I don't have that experience personally. But I know that at least for myself, you know, when you have a group of guys together, you, you come up with like a handshake. And like only you know the handshake, right? Maybe as little kids, you came up with some sort of like pig Latin, some gibberish language that you talk to your siblings with or your best friend with. These are all things that we create in order for us to identify as being part of the club. And this, in terms of religion and philosophy, comes about in the terms of symbols. So again, visual representations, but it could be any other thing. You end up getting things like the sacraments, if you're familiar with Christianity. Those are symbols, and they're actually very esoteric symbols, so we're, we're going to get into those as well. The thing that generally differentiates a mystery tradition than others is kind of keeping things secret. You can say keeping things occult, which is where the meaning of the word is. Occult just means secret. It doesn't have to be anything weird, satanic, or anything like that. It just means secret. We generally like to use the word esoteric because, well, it seems a little bit nicer, and it, it is descriptive. It means something that you're searching for within you. And I find that interesting that mystery traditions are by extension esoteric because many times we do have some sort of initiation ritual that needs to be handed down from an authority figure and if you have been listening for a while you might be familiar with my point of view on authority I'm not uh, I'm not too fond of authority in particular when it comes to ideology of any sort especially philosophical or religious because I believe that ultimately any knowledge that you need to gain from the universe comes from you. Of course, most people don't have the will and the drive or the patience or the energy or the time or just the will to gain some sort of esoteric knowledge. 
And so for most traditions, it's important to have some sort of quote-unquote master, a guru, a teacher, a priest, some kind of clergy, a monk, to go and teach folks about certain things. Of course, this doesn't necessarily mean that that would be a mystery tradition, because if that were the case, then basically any religion would be a mystery religion. And to some extent, that is partially true. But oftentimes the mysteries are hidden within every tradition. And so you need to achieve some sort of, some level of understanding before you can be initiated into the mystery. So if you're a Christian, you know, you decide you want to take Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you go and you get baptized. By definition, that is, of course, an initiation ritual. You're being initiated into whatever particular Christian sect you believe in. So it is an initiation. And of course, before you can take that leap into baptism, you are kind of shown some of the basics of what it's like to be a Christian. But once you're there, you can start getting deeper and deeper. And I often like to cite Scientology for this kind of thing, because in many respects, of course, Scientology is sort of a mystery tradition. Uh, in fact, I would say it's one of the more popular mystery traditions of today. And, you know, whether you believe it's a cult or not is completely irrelevant to me. Uh, to me, calling something a cult is kind of, uh, you know, like saying tomato or tomato. It's kind of whatever you decide. What makes a cult a cult? I mean, is it just the number of people that believe in it? I think that's basically it, right? Because if you take some more generalized idea of, of what a cult might be, where it's maybe some, some religious idea that goes against the mainstream, then, you know, and everything's a cult, right? In the United States, most likely you're a Christian of some sort, uh, maybe an evangelical or a Baptist if you're in the South, or Episcopalian if you're up North, whatever, some kind of Christian denomination. So does that mean that anything that's not Christian is a cult? Well, that's ridiculous, of course, right? Even within Christianity, you can say that there are Christian cults. But Scientology is interesting because it is generally considered a cult and it is generally considered quote-unquote evil because of what it does to its members. It kind of indoctrinates you into this belief system where you kind of can't get out of it. And there's, of course, many horror stories. I'm sure these are all true. I have no idea. I don't know. I, I don't know any Scientologists. I haven't had any personal experience with a Scientologist. So if you're a Scientologist listening to this, I'd love to talk to you because I'd love to learn more. But the reason I say this is kind of one of the most mainstream, you know, most most commonly known modern mystery traditions is because there are by nature in Scientology many distinct levels that you have to achieve and of course you have to pay a lot of money to get to these levels and that's something that I don't agree with we'll get to that later on in the episode but when you first join Scientology and this is something we know now because a lot of Scientologists have left and kind of given their belief systems out to the general public in order to kind of call out the the cult-like aspects of this religion when you first join Scientology they don't teach you about Xenu right so Xenu is this uh, like creator god basically that's kind of an evil creator god very similar to uh, Yaldabaoth in the Gnostic tradition the Demiurge if you're not familiar with it don't worry we're gonna dive deep into Gnosticism because I've, I've been fascinated with 
with the ideology for many, many years. And uh, there's this whole thing about, you know, souls getting thrown in volcanoes and exploding. And part of the thing that you need to do in Scientology is get rid of these spirits, these alien spirits that have possessed you. And you have to sign this, like, million-year contract uh, with Xenu for your salvation, etc., etc. Uh, a lot of off-the-wall ideas in some regards. But in many respects, it, it's not that off-the-wall. Just if somebody were to come in and say, oh yeah, you know, we believe in this guy that uh, threw souls into a volcano and they exploded and here you are, uh, a, a lot of people would be like, what the hell is this? I'm out of here. And so that's not taught to you immediately. You have to get through certain levels before you get to, to the Xenu revelation, right? At first it just seems kind of like a, a self-help cult, kind of. And of course we know that those are very common nowadays. I'm actually going to be doing an episode on self-help gurus because, uh, as you can imagine, I'm not very fond of that either. But this happens with every tradition. It just happens in different respects, and the wording is different depending on where you are in the chain. Now, I know some of you listening are very much into conspiracy theories. I know because I get some hints of it when I talk to you on Twitter in particular. And I, you know, I love to, to bring up David Icke. David Icke's got some interesting ideas and I'll bring them up now because a lot of his ideas are influenced by Gnosticism. If you're not familiar with Gnosticism and you know who David Icke is, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged because it will be very interesting when we get there. But I often see all these interesting ideas popping up as a result of conspiracy theories that uh, may show up on the internet, particularly on Reddit and uh, various podcasts, etc. And there's nothing wrong with believing in a particular conspiracy theory. If your personal experience guides you to believe that this is the truth, then of course it's the truth. It's the truth for you. And for you, that's all that matters. But you, of course, need to be sure that you do your research to make sure that this is a point of view that you can reconcile into your worldview. And I'll be doing a couple episodes on how to go about doing that in a way that makes sense when you're looking through ideas that you want to integrate into your own personal belief system. But, you know, I often hear within the conspiracy circles... Things like, uh, you know, the pedophile satanic cults that uh, that rule the world and, uh, you know, the 1% and this, that, and the other, and the Freemasons and, you know, the Jesuits and whoever else. Uh, you know, if that's the thing you want to believe, that's fine. But make sure that those are things that you arrive as a result of your own personal experience and not something you hear in a podcast. The first episode of next week will actually be on that. And I know I've been teasing about this episode for a couple weeks. Uh, I'm finally going to get around to recording it. Because there are, of course, a lot of charlatans who spew out ideas, not necessarily because they believe in them, although some people, I'm sure, do, but because they're simply trying to make money preying on the weak and the fearful. And there's nothing wrong with having weakness or being fearful, but you need to be aware of these things. Now, of course, if you have no understanding then you can easily buy into these things wholesale. Is there evidence that a pedophile satanic cult 
He rules the world? Maybe. Sure. Does that mean that it's the case? Of course not. If you only have one viewpoint on how the world works, naturally you're drawn to ideas and theories and belief systems that agree with your point of view. That's why you should be very clear in when you're looking at these things and look at them without judging. And be able to hold both points of view within your mind at the same time. It's very important. That's the only way to make the correct decision. But when somebody tells me something about you know the pedophile satanic cult, I think to myself, well, what's the evidence for Satan? I mean, are there people that worship Satan? Yes. But of course, there's a difference between Satan worshippers and Luciferians. But if you go into the Bible, they're the same thing, basically. But if you look into the meaning of them, they're completely different things, stemming from completely different sources. And from sources that predate the concept of a Satan. So is that true? And so as a result of not understanding symbology, we often get bogged down with creating these myths around ideas that don't necessarily have that meaning inherent within them. And this is why I want to talk about mystery traditions. Because one of the issues that arise as a result of mystery traditions popping up, and I'm including secret societies within this as well because there are some similarities, a great deal of similarities, is that if you're initiated, you understand the meaning of certain things. But if you're not, if you have a base understanding of it, you're going to come with a completely different meaning. Why? Because you do not have the language, the symbology ingrained within you to understand what it means. And so you end up making choices on what something means based on your own personal experience. Makes perfect sense. All, the only experience that exists is your own. So of course that would be the case. This is not wrong or bad. That's the way it is. It's human nature. You know, take a look at the pyramids. How many theories are there about what the pyramids are? There are not enough toes and fingers in the world to count the number of theories. Was it ancient aliens? Did people do it with levers? Did they do it with wheels and no wheels? They had a sled, no sled. They uh, levitated them. They used machinery. They were Egyptian. They were not Egyptian. They were Atlantean. They were whatever. Their observatories, their initiation places, their vaults of knowledge, all kinds of things. Because, of course, we're fascinated by this thing that's been around for thousands of years. And we want to know how. And when people want to know how, they use their own personal knowledge and experience to try to figure out how. And whatever idea they choose as the origin of the pyramids kind of goes hand in hand with whatever their worldview is. So this is important to remember when we're looking at mystery traditions because we want to try to look at these things in the eyes of a person that's initiated within that system. And of course, if you're not part of the system, that's nearly impossible. Now, now with the internet, it might be a little bit easier because maybe somebody was in one of these systems and they leave, and so they just you know, 
talk about it or they go on podcasts, right? And they talk about their releases on the podcast or whatever it might be. So now with the internet, some of these things have become more commonplace. But of course, false information about these things have also become more commonplace. So either way, unless you're initiated, you still may not know what the truth is. And the thing is, people hate not knowing, right? That's part of the problem. People hate mysteries. People always want to find an answer to the mystery. We've talked about this previously. This just leads to turtles all the way down and turtles all the way up. And if you're not familiar with the concept, it's just the idea of there. there's always something to base another idea on. Right, so a human being is made out of cells. Well, what are cells made out of? Cells are made out of molecules. Okay, what are molecules made out of? They're made out of atoms. What are atoms made out of? They're made out of nucleus, electrons, protons, neutrons. Okay, what are they made out of? They're, well, they're made out of quarks. Well, what are they made out of? They're made out of smaller quarks. What are they made out of? See, so turtles all the way down. And the same thing going all the way up. Well, the man is on Earth, and the Earth is in the solar system. Solar system is in the galaxy, and the galaxy is in a cluster of galaxies, right? a super galaxy, and then that is in the universe. Well, what's beyond that? Well, there's the universe has to be somewhere, so there's just another universe and a bigger universe, and so it's turtles all the way up. And so we never actually get to an answer because we always feel like there's always another answer to explain that answer. And I would argue that that's part of the problem of the human condition is the need to know and know and know and know and know. It's never ending. This is the reason why humanity is dispersed throughout the entire planet. It's the reason why we go into space. Because we have to explore. It's in our nature. We can't just sit still in one place. We have to constantly be moving. I mean, sure, we've been agrarian for, you know, 6,000, 10,000 years, roughly. In some places of the world, there's evidence for maybe a little bit longer. But I think generally roughly 10,000 years is what's given for some form of an agrarian culture. Because, of course, during the Ice Age, you couldn't have agriculture because there was nothing to farm. You were just hunting and gathering. And this leads to certain issues within our modern society. You know, if you're fortunate enough to maybe live still in a, some kind of hunter-gatherer society or a, a society that has allotted for a, a better system of, we'll say, hierarchy within the family structure and different age groups, you might have an easier time. But either way, most of the world is just kind of settled, right? There's still tribes in the Amazon, whatever. They're still doing things like they were thousands of years ago, but a lot of the world is industrialized, we'll say. And there's a lot of us, so there's nowhere to go. And that leads to what I would say is some of the, the mental issues that we have, anxiety and depression, because we wake up and do the same thing every day, over and over and over again. And people have lost some kind of meaning, something to look forward to. All you have to look forward to is the next day of work, the next day of school, counting down the days to your next vacation. How preposterous that we have to do that. And I'm sure there's a better way. That's irrelevant to this podcast. This is the way that the world is now. And we have to adapt to it. Hmm. 
And I remember reading the Hermetica the first time several years back. And when I got to this particular chapter of, of the book, I was like, well, holy crap. Like, does this mean I can't ever talk about it? I can't talk about what I learned in this book? It's titled Secret Teachings. Well, that's not necessarily what it means. So let's let's get into the this this chapter. And again, this is Hermes talking. Now that you have learnt these secrets, you must promise to keep silence and never to reveal how the rebirth is transmitted. Well, I guess that means I'm going to hell because I've been doing this podcast for a while. I'm transmitting all the secrets. These teachings have been set down in private to be read only by those whom a tomb himself wills to know them. I'm going to get back to this passage in a second. Only if you contemplate all that I have said will you know how it to be true. If you do not, you will not believe me. For belief growth from contemplation, and disbelief from lack of thought. Now this is key to the whole thing, of course. For belief grows from contemplation, and disbelief from lack of thought. Belief is not faith. Belief is not faith. Belief is not understanding. The only way to understand is through contemplation. And if you've been around for a while, you know what I'm going to say next. Contemplation is also meditation. Whatever form of meditation you choose to use. Seated meditation, walking meditation, prayer, reading scripture, listening to a podcast and thinking about it, breath work, sitting in a sauna, whatever. Meditation is simply contemplation. Thinking about things in a reasonable manner. And oftentimes this comes instinctually to you. Instinctually. You don't need to sit and you know argue the points of A and B to contemplate on something and understand whether it's true or not. Many times you have an instinctual knowledge of what is and isn't true. And oftentimes, in order to arrive at the answer, it requires not thinking about that thing at all. It's something that's mentioned in many mystery traditions, of course, in many Eastern traditions and Western traditions, both spiritual and non-spiritual. It is a neurological fact of your brain. Just because you're not consciously, actively thinking about something doesn't mean that your brain is not processing that information. It's always processing everything. Even the things you don't realize it's processing, it's processing. My brain knows exactly what's you know on the side of my eyes which is something that I'm not focused on, so I don't really care about it, because it's not in front of me. But my brain kind of creates this view of reality based on everything that it sees, and everything that it feels, and smells, and touches. And of course, the reverse is true. Disbelief comes from lack of thought. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to believe every single thing that's told to you. This is part of why this is a mystery tradition. Because you have to understand the underlying context of what's being said. Because if anybody, if you just read this, belief grows in contemplation, disbelief from lack of thought, okay, well, that means that you know, if you're a Christian, people that don't believe in Christ just never thought about it. Of course, that's preposterous. There's many people who were Christian for a large chunk of their life and decided this is not for me. I'm going to go look somewhere else. I'm included in this group. There are people who are the opposite, who were agnostic their entire life or atheist even. 
and all of a sudden had some kind of revelation. And now they get baptized and join a church and believe fervently in God. I would also put myself in this group because I've been on both ends. Speech alone cannot convey the truth, but power of mind is extraordinary. Now that is the key. That's the key to this passage. Speech alone cannot convey the truth. You can listen to preachers and teachers and gurus and whoever else all day long, and you're not going to come to the truth. Until, of course, you contemplate. And when you contemplate, you can decide if it is true or not. This is not a thing that you can do in an hour or in a day or in a week or in a month. It's, it's a lifetime journey. It's a lifetime journey. Everyone always preaches about, you know, <sighs> enlightenment and awakening and this, that, and the other. It's all baloney. There is no ultimate state of enlightenment or awakening. It's a constant process. And if you can think you can have some mystical experience of some sort and see God, guess what? You haven't seen anything. Because the divine, the source, God, whatever you want to call it, is, is unknowable. Because once you know it, you become God. So the only way to fully understand God would be to be God, and you are not that. And of course, oddly enough, when you realize that is when you achieve that state, when you do become it. But realize that you're only a part of it. You're not all of it. Speech alone cannot convey the truth, but the power of mind is extraordinary. And when it has been led by speech to think things through thoroughly, it can find the peace of true beliefs. Only if grasped by thought in this way will my teachings be understood. We're going to get back to that also. I have, as far as is possible, painted for you a likeness of a tomb, which if gazed upon with the eyes of your heart will lead you to the upward path. The vision itself will be your guide, for it has his power, peculiar to itself, that it takes possession of those who have seen it and draws them out, just as a magnet draws iron from the black earth. This is the journey of knowledge. Speed towards this knowledge. For although it is hard to let go of the familiar and return to the old home from which we originated, a tomb's grace never fails and there is no end to his bounty. He is by nature a musician who composes the harmony of the cosmos. I'm sure many of you, if you're listening to this, you're familiar with the, the music of the spheres and transmits to each individual the rhythm of their own music. Aha, now we've talked about this, right? You are simply a perspective of the ultimate source, the ultimate consciousness. If the music becomes discordant, don't blame the musician. I love this. Pay attention, because this is one of my favorite parts of this text. If the music becomes discordant, don't blame the musician, but the lyre string he plays that has become loose and sounds flat, marring the perfect beauty of the melody. I love this because I hear this a lot, particular in Western ideology. Okay, this is what I'm most familiar with on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, yes, of course, I have studied Eastern traditions. They view the world a little bit different. But this is so true in the West. So true in the West. And I never understood it. It never made sense to me. And we're going to dive really deep into this concept beginning with the next episode. I'm going to be talking about the uh, Gospel of Thomas. And then we're going to dive into Gnosticism. 
But if you have an omnipotent, all-knowing God, all-powerful God, oftentimes when something goes great, people will say, you know, that's the way God wanted it. Thank you, God. Thank you for this Oscar. Thank you for helping me win the football game. When something goes wrong, you get into a car accident, you break your leg, whatever. You get sick. Maybe there's some synchronicity where you, you miss an airplane flight and the plane crashes. And you were supposed to be on it and you're not. Oh, thank God. But how does it go when it's the other way around? Oh, well, you know, God didn't want me to go to the school. Right? I only bring that up because my daughter is about to go into junior year of high school. So there's, there's school in the mind. Well, God doesn't want me to go to the school. I'll go to this school over here. Oh, we lost this game because God didn't want us to win the game for some reason. I don't know why God cares about you winning the game, but God didn't want us to win the game. Oh, yeah. Your spouse left you. Well, that's that's what God wanted. Right? That's part of the plan. There's going to be something else coming. It's a, a growth opportunity. Somebody died. Oh, that's okay. They're in a better place now. We do these things, and we forget we're in complete control of all aspects. And of course, there's certain things that are purely chance, right? If you play the lottery and you lose, it doesn't mean you didn't try hard enough. It's purely chance. If you go out and get hit by a car, it doesn't mean you didn't walk fast enough. I mean, maybe there's some aspect where you just weren't paying attention. You get hit. It's your fault. Okay? There's always that aspect. We tend to blame the instrument instead of the actual cause. And I'm sure some of you that have been raised in a particular belief system may probably disagree. But I will tell you, God doesn't care either way what you do. I need to start I need to find a new phrase instead of God. There's just so much baggage to that. We'll just go let's just go with source from now on. We'll do source. Source doesn't care. Okay? Source doesn't care if you live or die, if you do good or not. It might make you feel better to think that. But it's not true at all. Because source is just always creating. That is the only thing that source does is create experience. It's an experience creation machine. And maybe that's why some people like this whole, you know, the, the world is a simulation idea. Because, you know, by extension, that kind of just turns God into some sort of giant supercomputer. So it, in essence, it's basically the same thing. And maybe I'll do an episode at some point where it's preposterous to think that the world is simulation. But it just, it makes it easier to believe that. Because, of course, life life sucks. Life is hard. It's supposed to be. Life is not supposed to be easy. There's no place where, you know, at, at one point we were in this magical realm of perfection, right? Garden of Eden, for example. And that's, that's a perfect example. Everyone views this whole Garden of Eden story as such a bad thing. Is it such a bad thing? To be in a place where, sure, like all your needs are met... Everything's beautiful. You you get to ride unicorns and you know go to bed and sleep next to a lion and it doesn't eat you. Like maybe that's cool, 
Oh, you don't need to work, just everything's provided for you. But then you're simply completely ignorant of everything. You know, the snake has kind of gotten this bad rap that, hey, you know, the snake made Eve eat the apple, and then Eve made Adam eat the apple. So snakes are bad and women are bad. That's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. Number one, you're missing the symbology because you don't speak the language. It's a mystery, and it's not meant for everyone to know. But should it be? We'll go back to that question in a few. But again, don't blame God when something goes good or bad. That, that has nothing to do with anything. This is what Hermes is saying. Blame yourself. You're the liar string that has become loose and sounds flat. But I have noticed when an artist deals with a noble theme, his liar becomes mysteriously tuned. Aha. So that its deficiencies issue glorious music. To the amazement of his listeners, it has been like this with me. I confess my weakness, but by a tomb's power, my music is made good. And he will likewise make your music perfect. Now this is saying if you find some sort of spiritual understanding of the way the world works, then you can retune your instrument, your mind, your consciousness, your body, and make perfect music again. There is no discord among the inhabitants of heaven. All have one purpose, one mind, one feeling. For they are bound by the spell of love into one harmonious whole. The earthly part of the universe would seem rude and savage without sweet melodies. This is why a tomb sent down the choir of muses to live amongst humankind and inspire music so that men could adore divinity with hymns of praise and polyphony with the psalms of heaven. So let us adore a tomb with deep gratitude because words are only praised when he accepts them. Now that's a little bit of hidden knowledge there at the end as well. Because I think a lot of times we get bogged down by creating some material interpretation of this deity, the source, right? God. We get bogged down by making it some kind of concrete thing where God is, you know, an old man in heaven with a beard and you know, sometimes a sickle or whatever. I mean, of course, look up where that comes from. It's not a Christian idea. It, it's much older than that. It comes from Saturn worship, which comes from sun worship, which is probably one of the oldest forms of worship in the world. I was tweeting about this the other day. I mean, most, most religions in the world are at their heart simply sun worship. This is particularly true of the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition. And if you don't believe me, do your research. Now be careful because they're, of course, charlatans. And we will dive into some of this sun worship stuff at some point in the future. But we're not quite there yet. But of course, as humans, we're this is the way we work, right? Humans are just, by nature, spiritual creatures. Because as far as we know, we're the only ones that have this innate ability of imagination. That, that's our superpower, right? That's our superpower. Now, tigers are stealthy and big and strong and have large mouths, right? That's their superpower. Elephants are just humongous. That's their superpower. Birds can fly. That's their superpower. 
Turtles have shells to protect themselves. That's their superpower. Our superpower is imagination. And it is language. And this this is the, the, the key symbol in all these traditions we've examined. What do you always hear? In all these traditions, God created, said the word and, the, and created the world. And the world was good. It's simply through speech. Because this is what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. We take in stimulus from all around us and we create a mental picture of what the world is and we project that out into the world and it's pure magic because you just literally created the world but of course if you're not initiated and don't understand what these words mean what do you see you don't see that you don't see the magical creation that you're doing on uh, every second of the day you don't see that you see some bearded guy in the sky creating things and making people do things like a bunch of puppets. Source is a, an experience creation machine. It is creating experiences and you are one of those experiences. And it is what it is using to understand that particular experience. This is why to think that the world would just cease to exist at some point is preposterous. The scientists talk about you know the heat death of the universe. And sure, it's, you know, billions and billions of years away, so who cares, right? Like, we'll figure out how to stop it at some point. But that's the reality of things. Things are super hot in the beginning, and as they expand, they cool and cool and cool, and at some point, they'll be so cold that nothing will move, and everything just be dead. There'll be nothing there. Which is a ridiculous idea. And also, not even a true scientific idea, because the idea that that is based on does not say that at all. But people don't take that into consideration. It's like the, the, the universe is 14 billion years old. That's preposterous. Ask any real scientist studying this stuff and they will tell you that's not true. That's just the fairy tale that's given to the public because it's easier to understand. I mean, 14 billion years is still a very long time. And it's still 14 billion light years is a very large distance. I saw a picture on Twitter yesterday that was uh, it was a picture from the Hubble telescope I think it was and they said that the picture that you see was like looking at a grain of sand from arm's length away and it was just millions of galaxies in this one picture and it was this, the picture that the size of the the sky that it was watching was the size of a grain of sand at arm's length we can't begin to comprehend the magnitude of what that means because in our little space that we're in you know it takes us months to get to the next planet and it's fairly close in terms of cosmological distances it's like just taking the next step even the next galaxy over is just taking the next step compared to the magnitude of the universe but the thing is it's easier to relate these things in a certain way to make people understand to kind of be like eh, this is kind of how it is even though we're never taught how it is unless we're initiated i was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago i was listening to an episode of what was it i was listening to the brothers of the serpent podcast and uh, and they had laird scranton on fantastic episode uh highly recommend anyone listen to it and there was some mention about, uh, you know, E equals MC squared. And, and 
this is not related to what was going on, but it kind of it's what got me thinking about it. And uh, you know, one of the ideas that I hear is, you know, well, if if energy is mass times the speed of light, then you know you could find a way to convert energy and mass because they're technically equivalent. And and that's not at all true because E equals mc squared does not mean that energy is mass times the speed of light. I know everyone listening right now is saying preposterous. I should make a shirt, a preposterous shirt. What do you mean? That's what we always learn. Einstein said E equals mc squared. Well, that's not what it means. If you don't believe me, go look it up. It doesn't mean you can convert energy and mass. It's just the simplest way to explain it is that. But there's much more to E equals mc squared than that. In fact, it's almost impossible to convert energy and mass. And the actual equation is not just E equals mc squared. It's a much longer equation. But there are several variables you can cancel out, so you end up with E equals mc squared. E equals mc squared, I think, is only true if the mass of the object is zero. For example, with a proton or a photon, excuse me, a particle of light. Anything beyond that, E equals mc squared is not true. You have to there's you have to have the full equation. So if you want to learn more about that, look up something about um, I mean what can you do? You can look up m equals e c squared, maybe that, that might get you there. Uh, you can look up oh, here's a good one. You can look up uh, why an an object with mass could never uh, achieve speed of light. Okay, you can look something like that up and, and go down that rabbit hole. But again, to go back to talking about the the size of the universe, I mean, 14 billion years is what we see. And if you look at some of the findings that we have, it's very easy to determine that that's not how big the universe is. There's galaxies disappearing from our view all the time. So maybe space is not flat. Maybe it's curved and they're going over the curve. So don't take any of these things at face value. Do your own research. Learn what it actually means. Now, of course, the problem with mystery, and this is true of any organized religious system, so that, this is why it's very tenuous when you get to this place. It's very tenuous. Because in order to get that initiation, you have to have some form of authority to give you that knowledge. right? A priest has to baptize you. The, the lodge grandmaster has to bring you into the, the Freemasonry lodge. The guru has to bless you. Whatever, whatever. Any of these things. And because there is no ultimate enlightenment, just steps along the way, it's a constant evolution, the people that have this knowledge oftentimes end up abusing it. And part of you doesn't care because you want to know. I want to know more. And this is the person that knows, so teach me. And of course that leads you into using your authority. Very simple. You see how all these things work? It's very simple. People make things so complicated. Always looking to find answers somewhere else, to find the ultimate answer, and that no such thing exists. You have to get to a point where you realize that this is good enough. For now. Because next year it might not be good enough anymore. And in 10 years it might not be good enough. And hopefully that's always true throughout your entire life. It's a constant process of evolution. You know, I think Manly P. Hall really uh, really nails it. Of course he does. He's Manly P. Hall. The man could talk. 
if you ever have a chance to listen to Manly P. Hall lectures, get on YouTube or wherever. I think you can go to like the Manly P. Hall Society and listen to uh, his speeches there. Great speaker, very eloquent. Never had any notes. Spoke strictly out of his mind for hours at a time without pause. Amazing. Amazing person. This is a quote from the Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall. If you've never read this, I highly recommend you pick a copy up. It is a gigantic tome. It's uh, like 700 pages. And it goes through mystery traditions and symbology and a lot of stuff from Freemasonry because he was a 33rd degree Freemason. So a lot of stuff in this book. Very fascinating. I almost wish there was a part two, but of course he's not around anymore. This is from the chapter entitled The Ancient Mysteries and Secret Societies, Part 1. This is the key to understanding mystery tradition. The ancient philosophers believed that no man could live intelligently who did not have fundamental knowledge of nature and her laws. Now, if you recall back to some of the chapters that I read in Part 1 and 2 of the Hermetica, this will sound very familiar to you. Because Hermes is saying the same thing, but in different words, in a very symbolic, mystical language. And of course, in ancient Egypt, they believed exactly this, that the world is ruled by a certain set of laws. And in order to be closer to God, you have to understand how these laws work. But again, remember, this is all symbology. It's all language. Before man can obey, he must understand, and the mysteries were devoted to instructing man concerning the operation of divine law in the terrestrial sphere. Few of the early cults actually worshipped anthropomorphic deities, although their symbolism might lead one to believe they did. Now, I've talked many, many times about the difference between mysticism and religion. This is what this is about. There's a very, very big difference. They were moralistic rather than religi religionist, philosophic rather than theologic. They taught man to use his faculties more intelligently, to be patient in the face of adversity, to be courageous when confronted by danger, to be true in the midst of temptation, and most of all to view a worthy life as the most acceptable sacrifice to God and his body as an altar sacred to the deity. Now, those of you that have been following this podcast since the very beginning may start to understand why I've structured the podcast in the way that I've structured it. We started off kind of in a very minimalistic way, kind of diving into some concepts, doing some exercises, talking about different techniques. Because you have to have that base in order to get to the next level and to the next level. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, I want to get to a point in this podcast where I no longer do that. Not because I'm some kind of teacher, guru, or anything like that. Just because in order to understand what any of this stuff means, we can't just stay in the basics. Because then we're simply in the world of religion, of imagination. And this is not imaginary stuff. This is very real stuff. But of course, without understanding the symbology, we simply treat it as religion and not as a way to understand the world around us and navigate it.
that's why we're all so lost. That's why we're all listening to podcasts like this one. Why we read books like the Hermetica or the Secret Teachers of All Ages. Because we want to know what any of this is about. Because we have no idea, especially now. We have no idea. So that leads us back to the question, why have a mystery tradition? Do we need to have them? And after all this time of thinking about it, I came to the answer that I'm sure all these folks that dove into mystery traditions came up with is that yes, mystery traditions have to exist because most people aren't ready and willing and able to understand the truth. And of course, if you're familiar with popular culture, maybe you listened to the episode I did with my friend DJ on The Matrix, you're familiar with the movie, you understand that this is one of the central themes of The Matrix. And of course, folks that uh, follow their ideology based on Gnostic ideas, not just The Matrix, uh, like David Icke, where we are kind of trapped in this present planet. Oddly enough, Scientology believes the same thing because, well, L. Ron Hubbard was involved with uh, Crowley, and Crowley got a lot of his ideas from Gnosticism as well. So, of course, it makes sense. And when I think, well, is my doing this podcast and talking about this stuff something that maybe I shouldn't be doing if I want to dive into the mysteries? Then the answer to that is, well, no. Because just because you try to explain things publicly, doesn't mean that people will listen, and this is what Hermes is saying. These teachings have been set down in private to be read only by those whom a tomb wills to know them. You know, there's that uh, there's that old saying, uh, I, I believe it's a Buddhist saying, something about uh, you know the when you're ready to receive knowledge, the right teacher will show up. And this has been so true in my life, and you know you know you can jot it down to like synchronicity maybe, right? or maybe as part of the plan, quote-unquote, the plan, or any of these things. But I don't think it necessarily works that way. Because, of course, you're only going to listen to something like The Alchemical Mind or read a book like The Hermetica if you're interested in the topic. And so if a tomb wills you to listen, then you will listen. We just can't get bogged down by turning these ideas into concrete physical objects or entities even, like a bearded man of the sky, because that's not what these things are about. And that's the reason why I said what I said earlier in the previous episode, that I just I, there's a point where I just can't talk about basic stuff anymore. Number one, because I do this podcast for myself, I don't care who listens. I don't care if one person listens. I mean, sure, it's nice when people listen and they chime in and you know send me emails or comments on Twitter or whatever. That's, that's awesome. I love it. I love chatting with smart people who are interested in things. And we don't need to agree. If we all agree, the world would be a boring place. And of course, the source wouldn't be having all these experiences if we all had the same experience. It's ridiculous to think that. Man, I gotta make that preposterous shirt. Alright, anyways. All I'm saying is, when you dive into these texts, into videos or podcasts or anything like that, 
do your research that is the key this is the key to understanding what it's what it is to be human it's so crazy that we're born not knowing how to be human how ridiculous is that how preposterous is that that we are born not knowing how to exist we've domesticated ourselves to such an extent that we don't know our place in the world but we can find that place and of course that place is in you because the kingdom of heaven is within you and also without you anyways i'm going to wrap up this episode here i want to thank you all for listening please chime in and let me know what you think i always love hearing your thoughts you can find me on twitter at mindalchemical you can email martin at theochemicalmind.com and uh, that's gonna be it i'll be back in a couple days we'll be going deep into the gospel of thomas one of my favorite favorite texts of any tradition so i hope you'll enjoy that and as always remember that you are it you